Hello, pod people. I'm DA, still alive, thank God, a year later, fully vaxxed, and still reporting from quarantine. And welcome to Millennial Edition. Thanks for joining us. It has been a particularly difficult few months in America surrounding police violence committed against vulnerable communities, especially the black and brown community. And we would be remiss if we did not take the time to discuss what is happening. A lot of our listeners have expressed exhaustion, fear, and frustration with the constant barrage of incidences where police brutalize and kill vulnerable individuals in our community, and we are forced to bear witness to the horrific details and videos, creating more fear, anxiety, and trauma. So I want to start off by asking our listeners, how are you? How are you processing all of this trauma? A lot of you have reached out to our team and asked us how we are doing, and that is so sweet. Thank you so much for caring about us and inquiring after our health. And I think I mentioned this to some of you on Twitter when you asked how I felt about the verdict, which finally legitimized in a court of law that George Floyd was brutally murdered at the hands of Derek Chauvin, a police officer. I'll admit it, I could not bear to watch the trial because I had to prepare that no matter how awful they retell these heinous, cruel events while watching the graphic murder over and over and over again, a group of individuals might still find that George Floyd had no value in his life and that Derek Chauvin had the right to take it. The very opposite happened, and I watched our community cry and cheer and hug and exhale that justice was finally done. I felt that for all of maybe five minutes after hearing the verdict. I felt happy and then I was numb. I was numb to the realization of how hard the entire world had to fight to get this one conviction. I reflected on how many black and brown bodies it actually took that died at the hands of police without even an indictment. I felt like the world, especially the black community, we were all celebrating the lowest bar of getting justice. Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd on camera in front of our eyes. He smirked while he murdered him, while people pleaded and begged for him to stop, while they watched George Floyd call for his mother before he took his final breath. This should have been a given. In any other instance, that wouldn't have involved an officer, or in any other country, we would know that justice would be guaranteed. But not in these incidences, and not in America. I can't even hope for accountability and conviction to be a trend. And I do not know whenever we will see any other officer held accountable from this day forward, if police were to kill another unarmed, defenseless individual. About an hour after the verdict was handed down, our celebrations were interrupted with yet another killing at the hands of law enforcement. The video, chilling. 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant shot four times in the chest for brandishing a knife during a physical fight. The next day, we couldn't even keep up, with three more disturbing videos emerging, including the killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo and the latest killing of Andrew Brown Jr. So I cannot possibly express how I am feeling about all of this personally. All I can say is that the constant barrage of trauma is beyond numbing. 
So in this episode, we don't want to cause you any additional trauma, but as many of you have had questions about what our country should do to address this epidemic, here's a millennial's take to help us all process these horrific events together and hopefully find solutions that can make our community safer. As always, remember to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter to be a part of the discussion. And thank you to all of the loyal listeners who have shared our podcast all around the world so we can have these conversations together. It is truly amazing and we are so excited and we are truly grateful. Okay, so let's dive right in. So in the wake of the verdict in the murder trial of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police officer, many of you reached out to our team on Twitter asking what we should do with policing in America and what are the next steps? Should we abolish, defund, or reform the police? Now granted, that is a very complex and difficult question to answer, even for those with higher degrees and better minds than myself. But let's take a look together as to what each of these solutions mean and what these impacts have either already had or can have on public safety. So if you're new to the platform, and as many of our listeners already know, I like to start off with some definitions to ensure that we are all on the same page. So let's start with the term abolish. What do activists mean when they call for the abolishment of policing in America? So Sean Eiling of Vox Media interviewed political scientist Jen Jackson of Syracuse University for an article back in June 2020, and I think she gives the clearest definition. She states that the movement to abolish the police is a movement that seeks to, in quote, build a world where we do not rely on anti-black, white supremacist institutions in order to regulate society. This means that alternative forms of order might be embraced like community care networks and justice structures rooted in restoration rather than punishment, end quote. So to unpack that a bit, Miss Jackson recognizes that policing is derived from a space of anti-blackness and white supremacy. And since this is rooted in the structure of policing, we need to replace the entire structure with a structure that addresses the needs of the community and is restorative, not punitive. As many of you know, because you are a sophisticated audience, and we know that from your engagements, Camden, New Jersey might be the closest example of a police department being abolished and replaced. In 2012, elected officials voted to completely dissolve the Camden County Police Department because they believed that it was completely beyond the ability to be reformed. At the heart of this decision was that the police corruption was so rampant, they had to disband the entire department. The community feared the police and crime was skyrocketing, making Camden, New Jersey, one of the deadliest places to live in America. The department would receive lawsuit after lawsuit, and it would be discovered that officers violated the trust of their community by doing things like planting evidence, fabricating reports, and committing perjury to just name a few. So they realized that they needed a new policing structure where police officers were added to the force, and those who wanted to retain their positions, they had to reapply and undergo extensive training. Because of these decisive measures, crime fell by a whopping 49% and the community now enjoys backyard barbecues with their police officers. 
Now, I don't know if Camden, New Jersey is the model that Miss Jackson envisioned, especially since they replaced the police force with another police force. But Camden, New Jersey serves as an example of what policing can look like and become if we tear a structure down and replace it with something else. So let's look at the next call by activists to defund the police department. So in a CBSN original documentary, which aired in March of this year, adjunct professor Arjun Singh Sethi of Georgetown Law School provided the best definition of what it means to defund the police. He states that defunding the police means, in quote, reallocating money from policing to other agencies funded by local municipalities, end quote. In the same documentary, Harvard Law professor John Goldberg went further and explained, in quote, I think at the core of the defunding movement is the idea that we want to take money out of city and local budgets that has traditionally been devoted to paying for police services and to redirect it to better housing for low-income people, better schools, and better mental health treatments, end quote. And I'll just say because I see it a lot online and with pundits and when Whenever someone mentions defunding the police, people pretend they have no idea what activists are talking about, and they critique the slogan for not being clear. So now we just defined it on our podcast as activists and intellectuals have explained over and over and over again. So now you can stop playing dumb. Now you know what activists mean when they say defund the police. And I get it. Many of you may not like the idea and the statement. That's fine. But we shouldn't play dumb like we have no idea what activists are asking for, this concept has now been explained over and over and over again. And I know many of you were very concerned with this statement because it came up in the last election as the GOP, and especially Trump, used this call to action to inspire fear in the hearts of those already struggling with issues of racism. I get it. Many fear that this one concept could put Trump back into the seat of the highest office. But just keep in mind, all concepts of reform from the idea to abolishing slavery to allowing women to vote to some of the changes being proposed in modern day America were once deemed radical when they were first introduced. It is a normal response to fear new concepts of change. It is also common that those who have a lot to lose with reforming systems to make them more fair and equal will exploit statements of change because they don't want the system to change. Even if you you change the statement from defund to reform, those who wish to keep inequality in place will still find a way to inspire fear to keep the system unequal. So for those who are sophisticated, and I know that all of you are, if someone asks you what it means to defund the police, simply explain it to them and remind them it is not a mere slogan. It is a call to action to fix a crisis that is killing a part of a vulnerable community. I will mention this though. The Cato Institute posted a poll in August of 2020 claiming that only 33% of black people and 17% of the Hispanic community support defunding the police department. 
Now, I don't know who exactly was polled and how large the sample size was. And of course, there is no way in knowing if they simply don't support the statement as a slogan because this poll was conducted before the last election. And if they might have feared the politicization of the action, which could result in another four years of trauma and hell with Trump. So I don't know about this poll, but I actually do not care what you call it. I fully understand its intent and mission, and I would rather just someone do it than talk about it. And for those who might be scared of this call to action, it's actually already happening. In various cities like New York, LA, Chicago, Seattle, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and about a dozen more cities, they have already reduced their police budgets and reallocated the money back into social programs that are beneficial to the community. The Guardian reported in March of this year that they believe cities around the U.S. have reduced their police budgets and reallocated the money back to communities to the tune of $840 million. In Austin, Texas, Councilman Gregorio Casar reported cutting the law enforcement budget and reallocated the money to create housing programs for vulnerable families. And to me, this is wonderful. Imagine instead of paying for shotguns, we pay for housing. Those are the kinds of programs that I want my money spent on. Not paying for police to kill innocent, unarmed people they deem too unworthy to live in society. Or paying the settlements to the families of loved ones they've killed. You wanna spend money on something? Build homes and let those without housing have a safe, warm place to rest their heads. Isn't that better for the community? Now to the more difficult definition, what it means to reform policing in America. And you would think that this would be the easiest definition to come up with considering that according to a June 2020 poll from the Associated Press, NORC Center of Public Affairs Research, an overwhelming majority of Americans to the tune of 95% want police reform. And yes, you heard that poll right, 95%. Essentially what that means is most of America agrees that there is a problem with policing and that it needs to be fixed. America is literally split down the middle on voting and supporting a polarizing racist divisive demagogue like Trump. We are divided on even the most simplistic issues, but the majority want police reform in one way or another. Now where it gets a little tricky is that the definition of police reform changes depending upon who you ask. Philip McHarris, a doctoral student of sociology and African-American studies at Yale University pointed out in a 538 article that, in quote, these police reforms are implemented over and over again and black people are still being brutalized and murdered. Nobody is saying we can't have mechanisms to promote safety. It just won't look like policing, end quote. So essentially what Philip is saying is that there can and should be reform, but reforming the police hasn't really worked in the past. Thus, we need a whole new system that will more than likely not resemble the current policing system. And before some of our more conservative listeners get bent out of shape with the radicalism of this statement, let's think about this statement for a moment. Years ago, police brutality was happening outside of the glare of the public and outside of accountability. 
When the public began to see incidences on video, like the beatings of protesters in the 1960s in Selma on Bloody Sunday, or the brutal beating of Rodney King, all the way up to some of the most recent incidences, the public began demanding that police wear body cameras while they work. In 2014, President Barack Obama introduced a federal program to reimburse a portion of the cost for police departments to use body cameras, and in 2015, Attorney General Loretta Lynch confirmed that the Justice Department allocated $23.2 million in grants to 73 police departments in 32 states to expand the use of body cameras worn by police on duty and to study if wearing body cameras will have any impact. And this was a huge win for reformers. Many believe that with the usage of body cameras while on duty, it would act as a deterrent so that incidences would not escalate. They also believed that it would be an instrument of accountability if things did escalate. And as we see today, none of that proved to be true. Police killings continued to rise, and in many of those instances, police merely turned off the camera so no evidence could be captured. And in this most recent killing of Andrew Brown Jr., the judge just denied the media's and family's request to release the entire tape of his killing because perhaps it will show the public that he was shot five times in the back with one of those shots being a kill shot to the back of his head. The family claimed that the police department only showed them 20 seconds of an edited body camera video. So McHarris may have a point. Though I will say it is hard for me to be convinced that although I believe the construction of policing is born out of white supremacy to catch slaves and protect white wealth and dominance, it is hard for me to be fully convinced that policing is fully beyond repair. I do not know if it is irredeemable, and I would hate to punish cops who may have never even grabbed their guns or made any arrests, especially for the purpose of lowering the dignity of one type of person or one type of community. And I know for many of you, it is hard to even conceive of this idea, considering all of the trauma we keep seeing, but it is very possible that some cops have done the right thing, even under a broken white supremacist institution like policing. And if that be true, then why would I want to take their jobs away when many of them feel it is a calling? And I know these statements sound unfathomable and contradictory, but good people can exist under a broken system. What does justice look like for them if they have and are doing things right? I believe, and perhaps I'm wrong about all of this, justice can reform a system without punishing the innocent. But then again, I digress. So going back to our attempts at defining police reform, the best explanation that I found was from Dr. Jennifer Kobina, who is the associate professor from the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University, who wrote the book, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Why the Protests in Ferguson and Baltimore Matter and How They Changed America. She tells Celeste Little of architectural design, in quote, an ideal community takes on a lens of care to prevent harm and heal those who are harmed. Restorative practices create a space that brings victims together with offenders to discuss the harm that was done, the impact it had on them, and how to repair the harm, in quote. 
She later points out that, in quote, the US is not the only country that has a violent history. Apartheid took place in South Africa. Genocide took place in Rwanda. But there has been a commitment to truth and reconciliation in South Africa. Rwanda has understood the necessity for transitional justice, end quote. Further, she states that America needs to acknowledge that when it comes to policing, other countries might have better strategies that maybe we should be exploring. For example, 19 countries, including the UK, do not even allow their police to carry a gun, unless in special circumstances. The article later reported that in 2019, only three people were killed at the hands of police in the UK. So let's look at some examples of police reform that are already taking place around this nation. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa signed a bill banning the police using chokeholds. And the significance of this bill was that it was unanimously passed in a Republican-controlled legislature. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York repealed Law 50-A, which shielded police disciplinary records from public scrutiny. He also set up a special unit in the Attorney General's office to investigate police misconduct. And he signed a bill that calls for more accountability for officers when they are interacting with those who have medical and mental health needs. Governor Jared Polis of Colorado also signed a police reform bill that includes rules on when and how the police can use deadly force. It requires all police to wear body cameras by 2023. It bans chokeholds and carotid holes. And quick note for those like me who don't know what that is, a carotid hole is a use of force where police officers basically compress the sides of a person's neck where the carotid arteries are, located to restrict the blood flow to a person's brain, which causes an individual to fall unconscious. Yep. You heard that right. And yeah, that was a technique they were allowed to use, which is deeply troubling, but now it's banned. The bill also seeks to hold officers who bear witness to a brutality and do not intervene accountable. It also removes qualified immunity and adds protections for protesters who speak out against police violence. And with all of those examples of reform, I, I just have to stop and say thank you for the tireless efforts of activists who have pushed for these changes throughout the nation. Most states are in the process of either drafting or introducing some sort of legislation to reform policing in their states. And a lot of these changes are because of the murder of George Floyd. A lot of state legislatures who are not currently in session have pledged to have special sessions to discuss and introduce police reform bills. The Marshall Project, which is a company that analyzes data from the National Conference of State Legislatures, has reported that all but seven Republican-controlled legislatures have not introduced any bills to address police reform. So while the movement to reform the police is extremely promising, we obviously have so much more to go, especially at both the federal and local levels. So how does my generation feel about what is happening with policing? In 2016, USA Today published a study which detailed that one out of four millennials identified police brutality and criminal justice reform as a top priority for electing a president, only second to concerns for the economy. 
A whopping 7 out of 10 millennials claim that police violence against the black community was a top problem. And before our conservative and Trump-supporting listeners say anything to me on Twitter about these stats, a whopping 78% of millennials feared for the safety of police officers because of these tensions and incidences. So don't at me. Okay, you can at me, that's what we're here for. We'll talk about it, whatever. Okay, so with all of that good knowledge, now let me answer the question that many of you asked me on Twitter. What model of policing do I want personally? Do we abolish, defund, or reform it? And my answer is all of the above. I believe we need to apply the best solution to specific cases. So what our listeners know about this millennial who is talking to you all right now is that I am black and I'm Latin Central American and I'm gender female. So I check a whole lot of boxes that would make me vulnerable to police violence. What I don't want in this nation are two systems of justice, white people. And and I have to exclude those living in poverty. White people live in harmony with the police because they know that policing was created for them to be safe and sheltered from the others. And I define others as everyone who is not white and not deemed worthy of protection in this society. Why do you think white women are so quick to call the police on black people for merely just existing? Because they know that the system of policing was designed for them to do so. And so if police live in harmony with white people, then we also must admit that they choose to live in disharmony with the black and brown and vulnerable communities. It is a choice they make, and I don't want a segregated system. Police can choose to live in harmony with our community the way they choose to live in harmony with white people. It's as simple as that. And here's what I want to point out. In the 1960s, it would have been very easy for the activists in the civil rights movement to create their own restaurants and thus sit anywhere they wanted to in peace, including at the lunch counter. They could use whatever water fountain was in that establishment. They could be seen walking through whatever door they wanted to. They didn't want that. They forced white people and white-only establishments to serve them whether they wanted to or not. And after being beaten, humiliated, and mistreated, they fought for legislation that forced their hand if they refused. If police treat white people good, then they should be legislatively forced to treat vulnerable communities good. If police do not arrest rich white kids for dealing and taking drugs, then they can't arrest black people for the same. If they refuse to police in the spirit of dignity and equality, then fire the officers that do not comply. If the entire force will not comply, abolish that precinct and create a new department that will. And on that note of abolishing policing on a whole, well, Think of it this way. Most institutions that exist in our American society were derived under systemic racism. Banking, schooling, getting a new job, etc. And in literally most to all institutions, we can still see the lingering effects of systemic racism. But alas, I, like many of you, still use them. I mean, we all still went to school. We all put our money in a bank. We all work 
for or buy products under a corporation, the pharmaceutical industry has literally killed members in our community with experimentation and racist policies, including unequal distribution of life-saving medicine. And yes, many of you are probably saying that it is because we have no other alternatives, thus we are forced to work with these institutions, and I get that. But because we are forced to use these systems, we were able to find solutions on reforming them and making them more just. And yes, we have a long way to go, for sure. But you know what I'm saying. So what makes the institution of policing different than the other racist structures I just mentioned? Perhaps the most obvious answer is that they literally are given a wide range of discretion to take life with impunity. And you would be correct with that answer. But what if we found a way to stop them from taking life? And what if we found a way to remove this guaranteed immunity? Would that change your feeling that policing could not be reformed? Like I mentioned earlier, police choose which communities they target. They choose to over-police and criminalize the vulnerable. I have never heard a white person tell me a story where a rich white person riding around in a Ferrari through a wealthy neighborhood was stopped and frisked because police thought that they were in the wrong neighborhood. I've never heard a wealthy white person or a white person in general being mistaken for a criminal in society. Domestic terrorists in America are overwhelmingly white, but I've never heard a wealthy white person being mistaken for one. How is it possible to never mistake white individuals living in society for criminals, but systematically and routinely doing so to the black community? Because it is a choice made under a system designed the way it is acting, with two systems of justice. Right off the bat, if we were to abolish anything, it would be incentivizing criminality. Writing tickets to pay for salaries is unjust to both cops and the community. Filling prisons to fill the pockets of private corporations is unjust. Putting any type of quota on stopping someone, questioning them, and ultimately arresting them, all of that is unjust and we need to do away with it immediately. We need to fully abolish the cash bail system in which if you are poor, you remain behind bars, and if you are rich, you can leave. None of this makes the community safer. And remember, our goal should always be public safety. If we are giving money to policing, then hire police salaries. Reallocate policing budgets where portions of that budget go to hiring individuals who have formal education and training in fields like psychology, counseling, mental health, drug treatment, human rights, etc. Instead of spending money on arresting the homeless, spend the money on providing them housing. And not every police officer needs a gun. We, the public, pay for officers to have full armor. Literally, police officers have Batman belts filled with batons, pepper spray, tear gas, and tasers just to name a few. Outside of situations like the one with Derek Chauvin, who used his knee to suffocate and murder George Floyd in cold blood, when police officers encounter someone from the black and brown community, they appear to always grab the gun first, as if it is the only thing they carry. Which means perhaps we shouldn't be paying for all of that weaponry they end up not using, and we should stop giving them all guns. As we keep seeing in these incidences, when we give them a gun, they will pretty much use a gun. So let's stop giving them access to it. In no way, shape, or form is it making our community safer. 
When we find a police department riddled with white supremacists, police abuses, or corruption, and this is pervasive from top to bottom in that police department, abolish that precinct, get rid of it, and start again. It's important to remember that police are funded largely in part by taxes. And when we say taxes, that is all of the above, property, business, and sales tax. Which means if you own a house, you paid for that police department. When you bought that cute shirt at the mall, you paid for that police department. When you opened that new business venture, you paid for that police department. Police departments are also subsidized by federal and state grants, but the financial burden is on the community, which means you are paying for it. Which means whenever there is an incident where police shoot and kill an unarmed person, we paid for it. And this level of violence is not us getting our money's worth. Imagine hiring someone to give you private protection, but somehow that person's very behavior and presence became a danger to the people around you. Would you keep funding that person's salary? Hell no! You would fire them in a heartbeat and ensure that that person was away from those you love and off the streets. So why would we continue funding a police department if it is causing a danger to our community? And even worse, police do not pay for settlements with victims and or their families. That burden is still on the taxpayer. So we can demand that if we are paying for police to keep our communities safe, we can ensure that the department has a policing structure rooted in fairness and equality and justice. If it does not, it is on the community to demand a new force. So now I'll ask all of you, what do you wanna see when it comes to policing? Should we abolish, defund, or reform it? Hit us up on Twitter and write me your responses. Bonus points go to anyone who records their messages and posts it to us. We love hearing your voices from all around the world. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Millennial Edition. If you haven't already, get vaxxed and please ensure that you get the second dose so that the vaccine works and we can all go back to our normal lives. And I look forward to engaging with you all soon.